Hello, my name is Sam Smith, and this is Map of the Maze podcast from Pep Talks, in which I'll be exploring a business theme related specifically to private equity backed and entrepreneurial companies. Here we are in London, pre our Pep Talk dinner with Humphrey Cobbold. Humphrey is the CEO of Gyms, the UK's number one. Uh, budget gym operator. We're here tonight. We've got we've got 16 CEOs joining us. Your name obviously still pulls the crowd. Well, <laughs> things never cease to amaze me. Sometimes <laughs> it's our marketing. I think that's what it is. Um, and uh, we've got an opportunity to have a chat prior to the dinner, and uh, we're interested in just getting some of the content down into our, our podcast uh, map of the maze. So, just by way of introduction, Humphrey, uh, you've spent your career really in and around the private equity world that is certainly true in those McKinsey days and consulting were you sort of really advising the private equity firms yeah exactly we we advised uh, both private equity firms on their own strategy and um, looked at individual deals with them in a diligence uh, type role yeah and then uh, you sold some businesses to them, didn't you, in Trinity yeah. Mirror? Yeah, I was at Trinity Mirror. We sold off some newspapers and other businesses which were bought by private equity firms. So I've uh, been a seller to private equity. Yeah. And then for your sins, you were a private equity Indeed. partner, investment director. I, I took that plunge with a firm called Candover, <laughs> which uh, I have to say um, ended in the end better for me than it did for Candover, I think. Yeah, but, absolutely. Uh, yeah. That is another story. They no longer exist. And, uh, and then into that sort of was the pathway, really, into the first CEO role with Wiggle, where we first met Indeed, all those years ago. Uh, what a brilliant business that was, and you did quite well there. Really, it, it, it had some great years. Um, I had the opportunity to take a business from £30 million pounds of turnover to £160 million, grow profits significantly, and to sell the business on behalf of the founders. And the initial investors made them a good return, uh, made myself a bob or two as well, which was great, um, and learned just a huge amount through the whole process and journey. It was a bit of a white-knuckle ride, to yeah. be honest. Yeah, I remember you were just, it was a sort of wild growth curve, wasn't it? You were sort of, I think you were sort oh, of saying, crazy. I'm riding a, riding a tiger here. Yeah, it, was, it was absolutely crazy. And when you've got a retail business that grows quickly, you're always in trouble because you've never got enough stock on hand. You're never planning far enough ahead for things so it was uh, really pretty testy and then you came out of that we'll talk about that later and had had a year out what a, what a gift that must have been actually 12 months off was it 12 months or two years 12 or? months nearly 16 months actually Amazing. off um if anybody out there has a chance to take 12 or 16 months off especially if you just had the good fortune to make a little bit of money beforehand in the middle of your life it's a tremendous thing to have the opportunity to do i had a blast probably gives you another sort of 15 years of executive energy i hope so <laughs> and then pure gyms now which has gone amazingly well uh, if not even better than wiggle in that i suppose the numbers are bigger aren't they yeah, yeah it looks a bigger business we'll 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 do around 80 million of ebitda uh, this year that's up from uh, 16 million when i took the business over back in uh, 2015 managed the sale of the business to new private equity owners uh, leonard green in uh, November 2017 and you know just thus far they haven't got around to firing me yet so that's tremendous <laughs> You're hanging on um, so I, I guess we're going to talk about all sorts of things this evening but I think for, for the benefit of the podcast I think there's sort of two or three areas that are really interesting that we can capture in a, into a small sort of section the first of those is you know you've you've done this twice and it's been very successful your CV looks fabulous on paper, <laughs> but there's been some hard times as well. You've had to you've had to sort of be on the ropes, and um, you've been tested all the way through. So, what what have you learned? I, mean, it, I guess I'm sort of keen to to look at three areas in terms of where you have really developed a toolkit. 
for this private equity CEO role and they are sort of what have you learned in terms of leadership managing these businesses what have you learned in terms of uh, developing a really strong working partnership with your investment partners and then you've been pretty good at selling businesses at the right time so um, yeah, why don't you tell us a bit about what you've learned about leadership in the first instance? Well, um, leadership of a business. Um, look, I had the good fortune, I thought, to work for and alongside quite a lot of chief executives when I've been a consultant. Um, I'd uh, worked in businesses um, and learned from working under chief executives, and I'd uh, been a PE guy, so I'd seen chief executives doing it from the outside. This will probably resonate with some of the people listening. When you get to do it yourself for the first time, it is completely different. It's a bit like thinking you know how to ride a bike when you've watched lots of people riding bikes. It doesn't look that hard, does it? I mean, they all stay upright, nobody falls off. And of course, you get on a bike and it is a whole load harder uh, than it seems. Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. Um, it really is a lot more difficult than it seems uh, from the outside. And it is quite a learning journey. And I think, uh, luckily, I'm reasonably quick at learning things. But I, I would say the first six months that I had at Wiggle as my first chief executive role was probably the most stress stressful uh, six months um, of my life, just getting to grips with everybody looking to you for answers, everybody expecting you to uh, take decisions in an environment that you didn't know particularly well. And I hadn't been in a, in a you're the last guy who takes decisions kind of position uh, before. So um, it, it is a daunting prospect. Um, and the first six months are always going to be a bit on the difficult side. But luckily, I learned uh, reasonably quickly. And that, um, that business was really quite young, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really an adolescent business. It had grown already very quickly, more than people thought it was going to, and it was 30 million of turnover and 4 million of EBITDA at that time. And it, was, it, it sort of looked and felt like a real business, but really it was like an adolescent. It was still very much uh, growing up. Uh, the technology was not particularly well developed. Um, it had grown far faster than anybody expected, so all the processes and disciplines and reporting structures weren't there. And we had to re... One of the things I realised quite early on is we had to do quite a lot of rebuilding, um, but while continuing to drive forward at a, at a hell of a pace as well. I mean, we couldn't stop growing and say, can we take we take a week or two or a year or two off growth while we just fix everything yeah. we had to keep fixing everything so you, you had to learn quite quickly how to both grow a business and fix elements of it on the fly and that is very like you know fixing a car while you're driving it um, you've got to keep moving forward because momentum you learn pretty early on is uh, an absolutely precious commodity you never even if it's tough and you feel like you want to take a break uh, you don't want to lose that momentum so you have to keep pushing forwards um, if you're on a growth curve, you want to want to stay on it. It's really hard to get back on a growth curve if you fall um, off it, as I discovered you know, later in my uh, tenure there. So that, that's a, a key learning for me. Second key learning in terms of leadership is to have the courage to be um, on the front foot in terms of recruiting great people. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you, Sam, you're probably the person I shouldn't say this to. But um, no, you've got to be really courageous in recruiting the very best people you can afford and indeed recruit people you can't really afford if you're growing and developing a business. The business will benefit from it, you personally will benefit from having better people in your team, um, especially if you're on a growth curb or developing the business in a different way. And I, I, when I look back on the early years at Wiggle, I wish I'd been bolder sooner uh, on recruiting decisions um, that I'd made, even though you and I made a couple of very important early ones that it's made a big difference. It's quite hard that though, isn't it? Because, yeah. because a, a business is hasn't got a shape for these roles. The roles, people have to 
sort of engineer the roles themselves. Correct, correct. and um, all, all roles are taken. I mean, everybody, everything's getting done in the business today. Yeah. You say, I want to bring in a big person to do role X. Everybody goes, well, we're all doing that now, aren't we? Well, and the reality is it's not being done. It's not being done as well as it needs to, and you have to explain to people and lead them through the process of why you're going to carve roles up as the business gets bigger and why that'll make us stronger and why good resources will pay back. Um, in, in most PE firms, I find, get this in theory, but when you tell them what it's actually going to cost to put in somebody who's ready to grow the business for the next three, four or five years, they often get a bit anxious about it. Um, again, I think there are, there are a number of fights it's worth fighting with your PE owners in the, in the most professional way you know, possible. You don't want to fall into fights and scraps with them, but the battle for good people is a really, really important one. Yeah. Uh, to get into. So I think that's something I learned and I was much more proactive and I've remained much more proactive about that at, at Pure Gym if I contrast um, the two. Second key point ab about that is also you've got to be demanding of the team. You've got to be um, at times unfairly and unreasonably demanding of the people who are in the business and the people you bring into the business. If this business is going to perform and do well, you have to set the bar and the expectation, you have to hold people to account you know, for that. In a professional, authentic, proper, decent way of doing that, but people have to know what is required of them and when they're doing well, and they have to know when things aren't right and what they need to do differently, and that's absolutely uh, fundamental. Um, the other key thing for me about leadership is, um, is authenticity and with that honesty. Being prepared to be honest about when mistakes have been made, when you personally have made mistakes, you're going to make a hiring mistake or two. You have to deal with them. People will judge you as much by how you deal with your mistakes as by what you get right. Really important. You'll make mistakes in terms of direction of the business. Hopefully they're not terminal or bet the farm type mistakes. But you'll make some errors of judgment, own up to them. Yeah, hopefully you've got a plan B in mind and move to them. And your authenticity and credibility and the validation you give to other people that it's okay to make mistakes here, not too many of them and not too big one, please. Bigger ones, please, but we don't cover up our mistakes and try and pretend they didn't happen. That allows you to learn organizationally for, from what's going on, and that's really important for people as well, that authenticity um, in leadership, absolutely essential. Great. What about the investment partner relationship? I mean, you had the advantage of being an investment partner, so you yeah, look, I guess you knew how they were thinking yeah. at Living Bridge. That yeah, that so, so absolutely, I clearly had none of the skills necessary, you know, in a tick box way to actually do the job they'd asked me to do to be chief executive of a fast growing uh, online sports retail business. I'd never done any of those things before. Mm. But as they said to me when they hired me, they said, the one thing we do know is you know what we're looking for. And so that probably did give me advantage. It, it, it took one side of the equation. Um, really onto my side. I knew what they were looking for and they knew I knew what they were looking for. So I did have an advantage in that regard. But you do have to still work hard on building the relationship with the PE firm, making sure you understand them, their fund, the people, the individuals on your board, how much does this deal matter to them, where are they in their careers. All those sort of aspects are important in terms of understanding what underpins the dynamics um, of the investor's direct role uh, with the business. Yeah, do you, for example, know what account they have to give of your business to the investment committee and every other people? How often are they called upon to justify how your business is performing and what information do they have to do that? You have a really important role as chief executive to make, their, make sure that they are well equipped as individuals to represent your business, their investment well to people internally within their firm. 
And to do that, you know, you, you've got to minimise um, the number of surprises that come through. Uh, you don't want them going to their committee and saying all's fine, and then next week you drop a bombshell on them, and they've got to go back and say, actually, we didn't quite know, but everything wasn't fine, and this has happened, and we've only just been made aware of it, because that makes them look and feel foolish. You've got to be um, open with them, honest about it, understanding the processes that they're working with, and have a very open discussion with them about that and say, how do I help you make sure that we're represented well within your, your firm? Because I know in the long term, that's going to be important you know, for us. So that proactive, engaged, open, upward management, is that's a part of the role. How, how often would they be sitting down with their investment committee going through the performance of your business? I mean, how often well, is that? That, that varies a lot, quite a lot by um, different funds. Um, m- m- many funds will seek a feed of information on a, even a weekly basis. Um, so they're almost consolidating results on a weekly basis and they can see that. Others, it's more monthly. It's rarely less than monthly in terms of formal reports that they want. Usually, that is in the background. It's relatively rarely in the foreground. When I find when, uh, when P firms get too close to anything like weekly data and, God forbid, daily sales data, although some start to ask for it when things are difficult, they typically um, become more trouble um, than they're worth. And so I have a policy to try and steer um, owners, investors in that sense, into the role of investors who review performance from something of a distance um, and steer them away from commentary on week by week, or as I said, you know, day by day numbers, even though some of them get tempted to do that, simply because I don't think they can help us very much uh, doing so. Mm. What about... Um getting value out of your investment partners. So we see some of the trends within our pep tool community is that the CEOs are learning for the first time what you know a board meeting should look like. But I think probably one of the challenges that they have is trying to extract value out of their investment partners. So that relationship of this is this is the business, this is how we're performing, but how do I engage Humphrey's brain in helping me overcome some of my challenges. Well, I bet they've done they've done this lots of times before. So. Yeah, they they have, and and but if I'm honest, I think the product of intervention um, by P guys is is mixed, and I think there is a really the really seasoned private equity investors who've been around for a long time and have sat on many boards that they understand um, how to judge very carefully how and when they intervene and seek to add value um, and and are always there as um, a point you can go to for guidance and advice, but don't overdo the seeking to be proactively involved uh, with the business and demonstrate how good they can be at holding management to account. Um, I mean, the way I characterize it is that it re- really investors should predominantly be investors and they should choose good businesses ideally um, and choose good management to run them. But they find themselves in a bit of bother when they get sucked into elements of management themselves or questioning or second guessing every element of what management I- is doing. And that, you know, m- many of them um, have some experience to do that. Many don't. Many are very smart, you know, 33, 34 year old accountants who being quite candid you wouldn't have running a corner shop and the really smart ones understand that and understand they have a role in deal structuring and advice and 
you know, some of the more analytical side of things, but they don't know anything about how to motivate normal people because private equity are not by nature normal people. The City of London is full of people who are abnormal relative to normal employees, and they learn over time that actually leaving people who know how to manage and lead a team of dozens, hundreds, and even thousands of normal people are good at it because they have an understanding and empathy with those sorts yeah. of people. So, so, so I, I, I try to kind of keep them in a managed way at an appropriate distance because actually I think their objectivity from a distance is more valuable to me in the business than when they get drawn too close in and they can no longer see the wood for the trees. Yeah. But working with you uh, over the last 11 years at various points, I think you do engage your investment partners quite proactively though, don't you? I mean, you communicate them, Absolutely. them in a very no, proactive yeah. sort of way. Re- really important. The more you communicate and engage with them, the better. As I said, you don't want them finding out any surprises from anybody except you or your CFO typically. The moment there's an issue that they ought to be aware of because it's performance impacting, I, I call and have a discussion with people. Um, when there's something positive going on, I'll call and or drop them an email about that as well. I, I never send a document with bad news in it or an email with bad news. I'll always surprise me how reliant we've become on electronic communications to do dirty work for us. Yeah. We all know the impact of a sort of shittogram email. Yeah coming through and that sort of thing. I think that's a sort of chicken's way out. Yeah. Um, I think you've got to reach out proactively and it is always harder to do about good news, but it's way better to do that, saying, I'm going to send you a document. There are two or three things in here which are problems for us and I want to talk you through what those are beforehand and have the, and why don't you have a read of the document and we do that, then have a read of the document and then we can, let's have another discussion you know, afterwards. Yeah. yeah, you proactively, you manage stuff that's landing. Otherwise, you end up in sort of shittogram emails backwards and forwards that just escalates. Easy to send somebody a bad email um, at 11 o'clock at night because you've had a long day and maybe you've had half a skinful as well. You know, That's where things start to break down and that does happen. So proactive management and engagement on every level, uh, yes, but setting an expectation that you're not expecting people to um, come in and, and um, over manage you in a micro sort of way and this is this is not without its challenges given many P firms are positioning themselves very specifically to their investors as having operating partner teams um, holding management to account many P firms in the UK and Europe have 11 10 11 board meetings um, a year yeah that's a lot of scrutiny that's a lot of, work. That's, a lot of that's a lot of work for management to prepare for deal with and deal with the consequences of and they do that in the best possible spirit, the B firms. I've actually learned, having now lived with Lena Green with a very different model, just how powerful it is, having fewer, more meaningful interactions that are structured with more time for management to get on and lead and manage the business. Yeah. Enormously powerful. And one of the lessons I've taken from this is I would manage that much more uh, with, my, uh, with my investors that I had in the past. Yeah. I don't think it was beneficial to have as many meetings as we did have. Just too much time taken out of the diary. Mm-hmm. And then um, the last point is exits, isn't it? So you, you have done two exits. It's a secondary, well... The, the, Both secondaries, yeah. Was it pure gym secondary or tertiary? Was uh, it? Sort of quasi-tertiary, secondary, yeah. sort of, uh, yeah. So there's, all, there's all sorts of questions in there, aren't there, in terms of how, you know, how, how do you prepare really well to execute an exit process? who you warming up along the way. You, I think you probably had a very good idea of who you wanted to go to Well, pretty this time I, round. You know, we had a, well, interestingly, Leonard Green came a bit out of left field, actually. Um, they were not who, if I went back six months, I expected oh, right, to okay. be there, in fact. 
Um, they came out of left field, which is which is a good lesson in itself. Um, don't reject anybody, even if they seem to be flaky Canadians from California. They've turned out to be some of my best friends yeah, ever, and they are not flaky Canadians at all. They're outstanding guys, you know. But from a distance, I was a bit puzzled as to why they were coming on the phone and saying they were going to come over and see us. But we kept an open mind, and that paid off very well uh, for us. Look, my, my view on, on exits is, is you know, really clear. It starts a lot further out than people think. You, as the chief executive, need to be looking from about 18 months to two years out and setting the business up you know, for exit. It doesn't mean, say, everybody in the business starts scurrying around or anything. That happens much later in the process. But are you setting the kind of performance parameters of the business so it's progressing well and ideally has a couple of years of growth when you come, come to the transaction point behind it? That's always a good sign. Are you connecting with the right advisors for you and your uh, management team such that you understand the dynamics of what's going on out in the market before you're anywhere close to being on the market? Are you getting advice so you understand as a team the difference between different types of transaction, IPO, uh, trade sale or secondary buyouts? And through understanding that, can you influence um, without, uh, you know, not, not in an inappropriate way, without manipulating anything, but influence the direction of that discussion. Because those outcomes are typically very different for the business and very different for current management of the, the business. Um, and I've lived through all of those processes to a lesser or, or greater degree. Um, and then as you go into the year of the exit itself, normally you're negotiating your budgets three to four months before that year. It's in everybody's interest, the P firms included, that you are outperforming the budgeted performance all the way through the year and the deal process. Nothing kills a deal or an exit multiple quicker than coming off performance and starting to underdeliver against plan. It typically kills transactions stone dead in the current environment. So getting the P firm comfortable with the idea that we're not going to set the toughest budget we can next year and make management work hard because we're trying to make sure that we're in a position to exit the business and for that we want every quarter we reforecast to be reforecasting upwards on the numbers not flat or downwards as soon as you're flat then bidders believe you're struggling because you know clearly you'd do better than flat if you could mm. so their sort of assumption is that you're pulling out all the provisions and you're struggling so that setup is really really important but also un un understanding that you are absolutely obligated, and I believe this very strongly, to be a seller until the moment that the ink is dry on the sale and purchase agreement, and only at that point do you become a buyer. Uh, you cannot you know, break ranks and try and go across to the other side and do cute deals to set yourself up for a nice deal. It, it, it just doesn't work. You shouldn't hold anything back. I, I, well, it's not a question of holding back. Um, I think you, you absolutely should be setting a plan and going forward with something that you believe is in the best interests of the business as a whole. Um, and yes, in that, you, you may, not have, may not have as aggressive a plan as you might otherwise have for next year, either first year of new ownership than you might have. But you can't afford to play games and tip the wink to certain bidders no. about what's going on in the process or doing a deal with them on the side that if they favour you and the team in a certain way, then you'll do them a favour in the process. It just, it just doesn't work. And you, know, you, only, you only have one reputation in this world. You can, 
you know, it takes your whole career to build it and you can lose it through a few loose comments in two or three meetings that ultimately don't do you any favours. Remember, the deal may not happen. And you know, I've, seen, I've seen sellers pull deals because they didn't believe management were doing it right. And of course, what happens next is management gets changed and they come back to market here or, or two later. So it's really important to observe that that integrity. Even if you know that the business is being sold at a sort of full price and it'll be a struggle to deliver the plan, that's the Faustian pact that you write. You go into that with your best will. Hopefully, you've been well incentivized to get a good uh, a good price for the vendors. If you haven't been, then sort that as a part of the deal preparation because why would you work really hard for people if they're going to do very well and you're not going to do very well? That's a very valid discussion yeah. Yeah, to have with people. Um, and you've got to do that well in advance of a deal if there's going to be any equity resets or agreements about deal-related bonuses. There are a lot of ways of structuring uh, these things that are fair. And that's a discussion much better had in advance. Remember, PE guys, you know, they're money guys. So they understand discussions about money and incentives and financials. You don't feel embarrassed about going to them and saying, I need a bit more in this for my team than's in it at the moment. Can we talk about what the options are? That's perfectly reasonable. Yep. What's the worst thing they can say? Yep. No. At least you asked. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, Humphrey, that's been great. Um, Pleasure. We'd better go and join our guests and wait for a glass of wine or beer. Okay. Thanks very much. You can download our podcast series from all the usual podcast places. Or do go and subscribe to the show. We'll be back with another interview next month. But for now, goodbye and thank you for listening.